If you've been with us uh, the past couple weeks, uh, you'll know that uh, through the Lenten season, we've decided to look at the last week intentionally, look very slowly at the last week of Jesus' life. We've looked at Sunday, Monday, and today we come to uh, Wednesday, the middle of that last week of Jesus' life. So I'm going to be reading uh, from Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts as we look at your word would be pleasing to you. May we hear your voice from your word here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, like uh, any good story that is out there, uh, the last week, the story of the last week of Jesus' life gives us great and often complex characters, and of course, it gives us great drama that builds as the week goes. And as our story progresses, these characters really develop into their final roles, and you begin to see that in our passage here this morning. There's really three characters in the story that I would like to look slowly at this morning as we look at this last week of Jesus' life. I'd like to look at the betrayer, the believer, and then finally, the indignant. But the first character I'd like to look at really is the betrayer. And in some ways, he captures our attention in a unique way as we look at this story this morning. If you remember, all this happened during uh, the Passover week, and that was a very unique week in the life of the Jewish people. It was the week that Jesus chose in order to be his last. And in Jerusalem, during the the Passover week, the the population of the city would swell. It normally was about 40,000 people, but then so many pilgrims would come in from all over the world to celebrate the Passover feast that many people think that the city swelled to about 200,000 people. So there were, there were people everywhere. I don't know if you like crowds, but this was not a place to be if you don't like crowds because there were people everywhere. There was a challenge to find places to stay. Everywhere you went, there were people there to celebrate the Passover. 
At this point, Jesus has really done a good job at making enemies. Really, all throughout his his public ministry, Jesus made all sorts of enemies, but he really angered them towards a fever pitch during this last week. And what the scriptures tell us is that the chief priests were the ones who were the most furious about Jesus and what he was saying and what he was doing. But they were, they were political tacticians. One commentator called them uh, Machiavellian masterminds because they knew that it could not take Jesus by force. The crowds in Jerusalem were too big at this point and they were, they were too great and too many people were enamored by Jesus. Too many people respected him and they feared that if they took Jesus by force during the day, it would create a massive riot in all of Jerusalem. And if that happened, then the Romans would come in force and put down the riot. So they strategized, they schemed, they tried to figure out how they could get rid of Jesus, how they could arrest Jesus in a way that was unnoticed, but they were stumped. They couldn't figure out how to do it. They had no easy way to accomplish this. They needed someone who was on the inside, someone on the inside who would betray Jesus. And by the end of our passage, they have their man. Judas, who was furious over Jesus' sanctioning of this act of waste, decided that he would be the one. He would be the one to betray Jesus. And now the stage is finally set for Jesus' arrest. Judas, as a result, would be paid handsomely for his betrayal. He would receive 30 pieces of silver for accomplishing this deed. I don't know if you've ever put yourself in the story before, but, but imagine just for a second how hurtful this betrayal would have been to Jesus' disciples, but ultimately to Jesus himself. At this point, Jesus' ministry had been going on for three years. For, so for three years, Judas had followed Jesus from one town to another. Judas had witnessed all of the miracles. He'd seen the feeding of the 5,000. He'd seen lame men uh, get legs under them and walk. He'd seen blind men have their sight restored. He witnessed Lazarus walking out of the grave alive and well. He saw the widow's son restored to life. For three years, he had heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of God. He'd heard Jesus teach in all sorts of different parables. He saw Jesus confront authorities, and he was probably there listening to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus spoke those words about the kingdom. He slept alongside of Jesus. He ate and drank with Jesus at various celebrations. He saw Jesus weep with his friends and cry over Jerusalem. But somehow, at this point, now Jesus had gone too far for Judas. It was all too much. Judas would now betray the man whom he had followed, the man who had loved him deeply for three years, three years of life together, three years of discipleship, all gone over a matter of 30 pieces of silver. For the rest of history, Judas Iscariot, that name would be synonymous with things like traitor 
and betrayer. Now, while all of history will always think about Judas in this way, Mark tells us about another character in the story and her, her deep love, her deep love and affection will also echo throughout all of history. We see in this passage a betrayer, but also a believer. The passage tells us that Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper, and we, we really don't know anything about him. We don't know how Jesus got there or why Jesus got to this home, but we know that he did. What's interesting is that Matthew and Mark tell, don't even tell us the name of this woman. She's completely anonymous in their Gospels. But John seems to want to identify her, and he identifies her as Mary. The passage tells us that she brought a, a bottle of ointment or, or a bottle of perfume, and she, in a very beautiful act, breaks that bottle over the head of Jesus. It was really symbolic in two incredible ways. In in one way, what was known to be a a practice in their history is that anointing would happen when kings were ready to ascend their throne and to take power. It would come in these coronation ceremonies where uh, the king would come before his people and he would be anointed in their presence. And it was symbolic of the blessing of God on this new king. But the second way it was symbolic was associated with death. Often after someone who is precious to you or precious to someone in that day would pass away, those that cared for them would anoint their body with perfumes. So Mary in some way realized, maybe she was the only one that realized it, but in some way she realized that she was anointing a king who was about to die. You see, Jesus had warned his followers that when he went to Jerusalem, he would be heading to his death. He knew it, and he very plainly spoke it to his disciples. But maybe Mary was the only one who listened to Jesus when he said those things. Maybe Mary was the only one who actually believed what Jesus said when he said those things. Either way, the smell of this perfume would, would permeate the whole, the whole home in which they were in. Everyone would smell this, and Mary would be remembered forever for this incredibly extravagant gift. I want you to think for a moment. Have you ever done something incredibly extravagant because of someone that you loved very deeply? Uh, I'm going to tell a story that many of you heard before. Some of you may even roll your eyes because you've heard this story so many times. But I can remember back uh, when I was in college and I started uh, to date my wife. I remember one day where we were living, we went downtown and, and we were just spending time with one another walking around downtown. And we, we popped into one of those kind of antique novelty shops that, that, are, that are very common in kind of artsy districts in, in the city. And uh, we were just looking around, and, and I can remember uh, one of the first things I learned ever about my wife is that her favorite show on television was I Love Lucy. She was raised watching I Love Lucy. Her great-grandfather watched it with her, and so she's loved it her whole life. So as we're walking through this store, what do we, what do we come upon? 
But we come upon one of these I Love Lucy snow globes. Have you ever seen these things before? When you pick it up, you shake it, and all the snow comes down. And, and this one was uniquely special because you could uh, lift it and turn the knob on it. It would play the I Love Lucy theme. And, and I, I, of course, could tell that it caught her eye. But then we just kind of went on and continued shopping. But what do you think I did the next day? I rushed downtown the next day, and I've, I found this store again, and I rushed in, and I, I, I got this snow globe. I, I, took, it to the, uh, I took it to the counter, and, and, and the guy at the counter says, that'll be $90. $90 for this snow globe slash music, uh, this music box. And, and while I, I kind of hesitated at that moment, what do you think I did? I bought the snow globe, right? Why did I do that? Well, it was $90, but... It was the most logical thing for me to do in that moment. I went back to my buddies in college and I told them about this snow globe that I had bought. They looked at me like I was crazy. You're a broke college student and you would spend $90 on this snow globe. But for me, it was the most logical thing to do because at that point, my affections were captured by something that was amazing. You see, this act that Mark tells us about was so extravagant that it became controversial. Well, what made it so controversial? Well, what made it so so controversial was the fact that it was just so expensive. The passage tells us that that this perfume, this, this jar that was broken, was worth 300 denarii, and that was a lot of money in Jesus' day. 200 denarii would have been enough to feed that crowd of 5,000 just chapters before in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, what many believe is that 300 denarii was roughly equivalent to one entire year of wages or salary. So imagine for a second, take what you earn in one entire year, your net worth for one entire year, and imagine spending it in an instant with absolutely nothing tangible to show for it. The church, of course, is commonly taught that we should give 10% of one's income to the church or to some sort of charitable expense. But for this woman, that was not enough. She wanted to give Everything, everything that she could make in one entire year was gone in one simple act of affection. The aroma of Mary's love and affection would have permeated the entire room. You see, she believed Jesus. She believed what he said about his approaching death. And she did what was the most logical a natural thing for her to do in that moment. She sacrificed the most valuable thing in her life for the sake of Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, she knew that Jesus was about to sacrifice the most precious thing to him, his very own life. Verse 9 tells us, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You see, Mark is making a comparison here in a very subtle way. One character showing the ultimate act of betrayal and the other showing the ultimate act of love. But what about 
everybody else? What about everybody else in the story? Well, the passage calls them the indignant. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. The Greek tells us that they snorted at her in derision. They were disgusted by this display of affection. You see, Judas wasn't the only one who was upset about this act. He went to a greater length than everyone else, but he wasn't the only one upset. Everyone in the crowd, you get the impression, is wagging their fingers, shaking their heads at Mary for what she was done. And when you think about it, who, who are these people around Jesus at this point? Well, sadly, it was most likely all of his disciples. Those that had followed him for three years, why were they so indignant? Well, they had very spiritual reasons for being so angry. They knew that they were supposed to care for the poor. That was a a deep part of their faith. So they began to think about all the good that could have been accomplished if instead we sold this perfume and distributed that money to the poor. They had very spiritual reasons, very religious reasons, very social justice reasons for feeling very judgmental on this incredibly wasteful act. And yet, in this case, all of those very neat and right and good reasons, at the end of the day, had stolen their affections away from Jesus. Now, we don't know for sure, but I get the impression that the disciples, still after three years of following Jesus, had not figured him out yet. They were still waiting for him to usher in a kingdom that they were expecting. They were still waiting for their agenda for Jesus to be accomplished and realized. After three years, they still misunderstood who Jesus was. They, they either didn't believe it or they misunderstood the very things that he said plainly about himself, that he would have to die. Mary, maybe in this case, was the only one in the room who really understood. The only one in the room who really believed. Everybody else was raiding around for Jesus to restore the kingdom. And they were going to be the top dogs in this kingdom. It was all about their picture of the kingdom, not Jesus' picture. It was all about their glory, not the glory of God. And many of Jesus' disciples would not even get on board until they saw Jesus on Sunday, resurrected from the dead. You see, I think what Mark does and what a lot of gospel writers do is is they offer us these stories and then they want us to ask a very simple question of one another. Which one are you? Who are you in this story? Well, are you oppositional to Jesus? Does his plan and his agenda irk you to your core? Well, probably if that was you, you wouldn't be sitting here this morning right? But, however, while we may not be overtly oppositional to Jesus, many of us 
fall in the temptation of viewing Jesus just like the crowd did that day? Are you indignant towards Jesus? Maybe not in an overt way, but maybe in a very subtle way. This is what it looks like. Have you locked into your perspective on God's kingdom rather than allowing Jesus to redefine it for you? Are you so passionate about your picture of morality and religiosity that in the end of the day, you miss Jesus? Does he fit in the box that you have constructed for him? Do you want him to get on board with your agenda for the kingdom rather than submitting to his? Is it about rules and policies and procedures or is it about love and affection? Is he in control or do you struggle to hold on to that control for yourself? If so, you will find yourself constantly frustrated with Jesus and maybe even resentful that he isn't getting on board with your plans. Or are you like Mary? Have you been so captured by Jesus that your affections for him defy all common sense? Do you find yourself so in awe of Jesus and his gospel that you cannot help your affections? You cannot hold them in any longer. Do others look at you like you're crazy about this God thing, but it makes perfect logical sense to you? Do you want to give Jesus only a small portion of who you are? Or are you looking for lavish ways that you can pour yourself out for him? Do you struggle with half-hearted emotions? Or has your heart been so captured by Jesus that you can't help but follow him? It's no accident that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are fools for God's sake. You might be asking yourself, where do, where do these affections come from? Where, what is the source of affections like this? What's the source of Mary's affections here? Well, Mary knew that in love, Jesus was about to give his life. And because she knew that, it transferred into this incredible act of affection. Friends, do you want affections? Do you want passions like that for God? Then look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to the length that Jesus went to purchase a relationship with you and allow it to overwhelm you. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, A sense of the love of God to us is the main cause of our love for God. Do you look at the cross and observe Christ's great love for you? Does it overwhelm you to the point of even tears? Tim Keller said, A religious or a rules-oriented person finds God useful. But a true believer finds God beautiful. 
I want to close with a story uh, that I read at some point, and uh, I have to be honest, I don't remember where I read it, and to, to be completely honest, I don't even know if it's true, but it's a good story, right? So let me read this. It's about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln went to a slave market, and while there, he noted a young, beautiful African-American woman being auctioned off to the highest offer. He bid on her, and he won. He could see the anger in the young woman's eyes and could imagine what she was thinking. Another white man who will buy me, use me, and then discard me. As Lincoln walked off with his property, he turned to the woman and he said, You're free. Yeah, what does that mean? She replied. It means that you're free. Does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, replied Lincoln, smiling. It means you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean, she asked incredulously, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean, the young woman said hesitantly, that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, it means you are free and you can go wherever you want to go. Then, said the young woman with tears welling up in her eyes, I think I'll go with you. Friends, your freedom was bought with a price. So follow Jesus in costly ways, not because you should, but because you cannot help yourself. Let's pray.